and welcome to this week's episode of Tired and Thriving, a podcast recognizing just how tired and exhausted we all are while discussing ways to still thrive. Whether it's something big like jumping into the middle of a crowd to play your song or something small like strumming your instrument in quiet contemplation, we're here to help each other thrive. I'm your host, Samantha Gray, and this week's guest is Kay, aka Kishibashi. Kay is a singer, multi-instrumentalist, and songwriter, although I want to point out how cool it is that his main instrument on stage is the violin. Recently, he has gone on tour promoting his six-year labor of love, Omoyari, a song film by Kishibashi, a beautiful and introspective documentary film that explores minority identity and the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. That's available to watch on Paramount+. Plus. Thank you so much for being here with me, Kay. Yeah, I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you. Um, so to start off, what is your origin story for your interest in music and what made you decide to do it professionally full time? Uh, origin story in music. Well, I was a Suzuki violin kid, you know, oh Suzuki. So like Same all, here. Oh yeah. Like all Asian, good little Asian boys and girls, um, you know, played violin. Uh, and, uh, I kind of kept it up. I, I like the instrument. Uh, in high school, I got really serious. I played classical music and then I went to, eventually went to music school and studied jazz violin and film scoring. Oh, wow. Here I am, yeah. tired and thriving. You know? <laughs> uh, so then, even though you studied jazz in college, what made you decide, because in the documentary you did mention, like, there was one point when you were living in New York that you were like, okay, <clears throat> I'm just this, I'm going to start making music and making that my career. Well, I was pretty determined to make that my career. So, you know, even through, like, uh, like I wouldn't have gone to you know, music school if I didn't think I could make that my career. And so um, when I moved to New York, you know, I lived in New York City for about 10 years after Berkeley, which is in Boston. And uh, during that time, you know, I was struggling as a jazz violinist and played in the circus and and I started a rock band. And that's when I started to to realize that there's a potential for uh, really thriving with uh, original music because uh you know people like bands and it was, it was yeah. a good time to be in a in a rock band in New York City like Brooklyn and in the mid 2000s was a, a thriving place. I'm just <laughs> using thriving a lot. It's just a topical. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Since your full-time job is also your passion, in what ways has music helped you thrive and in what ways if at all has it made you tired? Well, I think if you if you follow your passions, you know, I think it'll you'll push yourself beyond what you think you even know is capable. So I might not even know I'm tired, but I'll keep going. So like a lot of times, like after tour, I'll, mm-hmm. you know, it's called a, a lot of, it's called tour depression. So like, because of the adrenaline of the tour, it keeps your, keeps you going. And it kind of, honestly, it's probably kept a lot of these germs at bay. So I usually get sick after my tour, you know, cause I don't have the adrenaline of the shows and the tour of just like get up and go and, and celebrate and do the show and then talk to a lot of people and hang out and, and do all these things like night after night. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I know I've known to just be able to push myself until um, the job's done. And then when the job's done, I usually collapse and oftentimes I get sick. Yeah. Uh, I feel that's very common with like artists across all genres. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, it's a passion. It's also an obsession it can be also an addiction. So it's, it's dangerous. Cause, you know, if you're really, uh, if you love what you do, you can really sacrifice a lot of your health. For it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you perform live, you and your band are so energetic and unique. I can see why people come to see you multiple times. Uh, what is your favorite thing about playing for a live audience? I mean, I, you know, I, I like to see people smiling and laughing and, and dancing. It makes me really happy. It means that I, I've done my job because, you know, they pay a lot of money to come to these shows. 
you know, and, and, you know, they have babysitters and it's an event. So to me, I take that seriously and I, and I like to provide entertainment and in, engaging things. And I like, also like them to, to come out feeling um, excited about music and what they just saw and what they experienced art, music. And so, yeah. Uh, when I listen to your music, I can't help but feel a sense <clears throat> of depth and wonder in your artistry. Even though each album has clear evolutions in them, they still hold on to a certain classic kishibashi sound. Did you have specific intentions for each album you made? Uh, like with 151A, were you thinking, okay, this is from my rawest of hearts. And then when you went to Sonderless, was that like, okay, now that I let out my heart, here's me expanding and experimenting. <laughs> I definitely didn't plan that, like you <laughs> described. But uh, <laughs> I think uh, as a solo artist, I have the ability to just really do whatever I want. And so, mm-hmm. um, like if you're in a band, it's it's music by committee, so mm-hmm. which is it, which is great. It can turn to something amazing. It could also be restrictive. And so, like as a solo artist, I think I just kind of my approach to making albums is I just I look back at my last two years or three years, or in this case, like six years, you know, and I see what I've, the ideas I've come up with. And I look at them and I see what I've been into. And this is the most inspiring batch of ideas usually turns into the album. So if it's like energetic, or if it's like acoustic, if it's like folky, or if it's like electronic, or, and sometimes, you know, it doesn't fit. There'll be things that are really inspired that I think are inspired that don't fit. And I'll just save that for a later album. I know I kept saying like, oh, you're doing it like, you're doing music professionally, but really it's like you've become a solo artist in the past 10 years. Yeah. But then before that, like, I guess, can you tell what other music, like if you were doing it professionally, what other types of jobs in music is there? Or Yeah, I mean, um, it's a good question. So I graduated, I was a film scoring major. So I was able to do underscore like for docs and commercials. And then I had that technical skill. Um, and I was able to, and as a violinist, I was able to, you know, I was playing like weddings and like new age music gigs and, uh, whatever, uh, came or jazz gigs at night. Um, and I was, uh, I was also an improvising violinist. So that's like a specialty. Mm. So I could do like, I played in like the circus band, you know, so I played violin and, um, I think I, I always st- stayed like afloat doing only music because I could, I was versatile. But I think um, if you have like a couple skills and you can kind of float around, you can, it was possible. But I was always like thinking ahead to what am I doing like two months from now, mm. like filling up my schedule with work. That's really the only way you can when you're like a freelancer. Yeah. But then like transitioning into like a solo artist, that was like really tough. Mm. You know, I had to like drop everything, move into my parents' house and like work on my album. Yeah. You know, but only because I saw some promise when I was like, opening up doing like solo oh, stuff. Oh, really? Like people were actually, yeah, reacting to it. People were reacting to it in a way that I hadn't seen like with my rock band. Mm. So we do a rock band. And it was a struggle. You know, it was fun and we were loud and we partied <laughs> and stuff. But it was like, uh, it, we were, it, it, it's not like a lot of new fans would keep coming. Yeah. You know, but when I did my solo stuff, I had the opportunity to open up for Regina Spector in Australia solo when I was in her band. Wait, so how did and that like, come about? Like, were you in the rock band and someone saw you and was like, hey, can you do this solo? Or? No, no, no. It, it's, I, so I was in her band, like as a hired musician. What? Right. So, yeah, for a year. I did it for like a year, a couple of years, actually. Regina Spector. And her huge, like, world tour is, like, big. It was, like, it was big everywhere. Um, like, Greek Theater in L.A. and, like, Radio City Music Hall in New York. And, like, 
two nights at Sydney Opera House. It was like a luxurious like tour. And so I had convinced her somehow to let me open up for her with Jupiter One, my rock band. Uh-huh. And so we did that for the U.S. tour. But then when we went to Australia, there's no way we could pay. She wasn't <laughs> going to pay for like a band to come. And there was a whole thing where, where basically it's, there's some kind of like Australian law that says that the openers have to be Australian. You know, and she had to fight them because she made a promise to me to let me open up. And so I opened up solo in parts of Europe and where we couldn't have a band. Mm-hmm. You know, we couldn't we can just bring over three dudes, you know, <laughs> like just to open up for 200 bucks or whatever, you know, um, in Australia was just impossible. So anyways, what I did was I opened up solo and people I had like bootlegged a bunch of Jupiter one CDs because my label is so like. Um, incapable of like providing merch, so like they, I had to like go and copy CDs at like a place in Australia, like a CDRs, you know if you remember those. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, and I I bootlegged like you know, like because I sold out of them like so quickly. Oh, wow. You know, so I had to bootleg like three hundred CDRs. And I came back with like five thousand dollars, <laughs> you know, and then I was but just playing solo these like songs of my rock band. And I, that's when I realized we didn't sell like that when we were opening up for her as a rock band in America. Like it was just like, that was cool, but nobody was like rushing to buy our CDs. But people were rushing to buy my solo stuff. That's when I realized, oh, maybe there's something where I can like really focus on the softer side of my voice and, you know, have like more creative creativity on my own. You know, I think she kind of taught me that. I don't know if you know her music, mm-hmm. but it's like, it's, it's very intimate. Like you feel like she's in your head singing right into your brain. And I think that's something that I, instead of like, uh, she really taught me how to do that, like on live and like how to like really sing to your audience. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's so cool. Yeah. That was pretty, pretty cool for me too. (laughs) Yeah. Regina Spectre World World Tour was pretty cool. So when you, uh, like when you released your music, was that very like what were you feeling when you first released your solo? It was a little nervous because you know I was kind of starting from scratch again. So I just kind of broken up with my rock band and then uh, putting out my solo album. But I don't know. I think I was getting enough good input from people I played it for, like friends of mine, and I don't know. It's it's just the kind of thing where it's you. You just, uh, when you put out an album, it's just a snapshot of your life Yeah. at that moment. So I think I kind of took that to heart and being like, and that's why I call it Ichigo Ichie, which means one time, one meeting. It's unique and every single moment is unique. Every single interaction is unique to that moment in time. And so you should just cherish it and just let it go mm. and remember what it is. And so like I use that as a kind of a mantra for that album and, and from there forth, just every album is just a snapshot of your creativity at that moment in time. And, that it'll, uh, you know, you'll have a long career of many moments. That's, that, is, that is what it is to be an artist. You have to keep changing and keep being inspired. Wow. That's something to hold on to. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it really helps you. Because, you know, you think you don't want to be, you're not going to create a masterpiece, mm-hmm. you know. Like, oh, I, I can't, it's not ready. It's not my masterpiece. Oh, it's not ready. It's not ready. I mean, that's something that'll be, that'll hang many an artist up. But the true, like, professional artists, the ones that are thriving, 
that are putting out constant work and seem to be inspired. Those are the ones who are who have the ability to let go. Yeah. And be vulnerable and let just let that idea go, even if you think it's not ready. You do your best. There might be a deadline, but you know, you can just you still do your best. And if people if people love it, great. If people don't like it, you, and also great. You could just you're a solo artist. You can move on and make another piece of art. Mm-hmm. Now I found out about your work from my friend. Shout out to Megan. Hey Megan, thanks for thanks for uh, hipping me. <laughs> Um, and she was one of the many supporters who helped fund your film. <laughs> Thanks, Megan. I hope you got everything uh, that we promised you. <laughs> I think she did. Okay, good. She invited me to come see your screening of Omoi Yari, and I went in having no context of what to expect other than your beautiful music. I found myself in thought much of the time while watching your documentary. I even cried. So let's start with what brought you to make this documentary in the first place. Well, the origins for the documentary, uh, there was a concert piece called Improvisations on EO9066, which is a, a piece I was commissioned to, to make in 2017, maybe 2016. And so this, the film was actually supposed to be a uh, behind the scenes of the making of this concert piece. And so that kind of started this... Um, uh, and then and then as we we're capturing like these behind the scenes interviews of me and like and I'm interviewing other I didn't really interview people that much actually let me think no like in our first trip you know to to make this thing I don't think we really interviewed anybody we had like just more like sound bites and and things like that and I think we realized that uh, I was like learning so much and I had a lot of really things that I wanted to pursue intellectually um, and musically that we just kept filming until we realized we had a feature-length documentary. Oh, wow. So is that why it took six years to make? Or <laughs> Well, um, a lot of documentary filmmakers will, will tell you that it takes, it can take longer. It can take like decades, you know. Oh my so um, we had the intention of really just um, doing what we could to um, wrap it up within a couple years and then uh, not realizing that it, it really takes a long time to make the story that you want to. So that's why it took six years. Mm. Uh, what was that journey like for you for it taking six years? Like what, how many iterations did it go through? Yeah, it was, uh, it's, it was pretty frustrating at times, you know, cause it's like you make the story and like, or what's the story about? Is it about me? Is it about Japanese American incarceration? Is it about World War II history? Is it about music? You know, and I think like having these competing uh, ideas and narratives and sewing them into one watchable like 90 minute or less than 90 minute film was really really challenging and so what you saw today was like the 10th iteration of major edits that we did like we had a two-hour cut at one point that was like jam-packed with a lot of cool stuff but kind of like all over the place and then we whittled it down to 90 minutes which we premiered at south by southwest and then we got bought by mtv docs and then you know paramount plus and then um then we had to cut it another 20 minutes out of that yeah what so so what you see now is a watch a very watchable movie in my opinion oh my know. gosh but it took it took a, like several years of editing got it was there anything that you weren't able to include in the documentary due to that time that you wish you could have added or yeah even to the two hour cut or uh the two hour cut had a lot of uh pretty much had all the ideas that i was passionate about i think you know there's a scene about okinawa you know i went to okinawa with my mom mm. uh <clears throat> she's okinawan which makes me half okinawan and um, kind of like talking about injustice and um, 
cultural erasure and things like that that I thought were relevant, uh, but it just it, it was just it was just too much. And I think I decided to dedicate, you know, in, probably in the future, dedicate like a, another film to that whole idea. But yeah, there it's it's a process called killing babies. Is like it's uh, what editors call filmmakers call killing bait because you know you're passionate about this scene. You're like you you know you spent so much time there and like you got this great piece of art in itself, but does it help the story? You know, that's the question we had to ask ourselves and oftentimes not. Yeah. Um, but I had a question actually from my friend, Megan, she really wanted to know, uh, did you think about bringing up the Japanese Americans who refused to pledge loyalty to the U S? Uh, good question. Um, you know, that's a history that I wanted to include, but it was very difficult to, um, to talk about, uh, to like explain the whole questionnaire. Thing. So I don't know if you you know are you familiar with the, the you know the loyalty questionnaire with the other two questions and so in the documentary it was um, you know that was something that was always significant to to a lot of the incarcerees that the, you know that there was resistance to this it wasn't they weren't they weren't just completely complacent and and docile and you know in these camps um, satisfied with their exist with their situation um, yeah there was. Um, and there's draft resistors in the in Heart Mountain, too. So there's a like a resistance history. And I think uh, there's a lot of stuff I didn't include in the documentary because I really wanted to focus on the overall like story and uh, the narrative of being removed and then incarcerated. And yeah, it was just one of the things I, I really just couldn't fit in. But I thought it was okay because... Um, if you Once you know about this history, there's like so much more opportunities to like dive into it and like and learn about like these these nuances because i think yeah yeah there's a lot of nuances i I just couldn't include just didn't have the time yeah if people wanted to look up more information is there anywhere you'd point to first to be like here go here yeah uh, we work with densho densho in seattle so densho is a big archive and educational like resource so there's a lot of like stuff Mm. In fact, like a lot of the testimony testimonials from the videos and there's lots of photographs and they have like tons of like resources for information. Oh, wow. Okay. That's great. Yeah. Uh, we'll have to start there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to go back to, you said that this came about cause you got hired to compose a piece. So was the piece for this documentary and you became a part of it or was it uh, a separate thing? Are, are you talking about EO 9066? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that piece initially was, uh, it was the improvisations that I did, uh, backed against the history of the Japanese American internment, you know, the incarceration in World War II. So thematically, uh, it was, it was very tangential, mm-hmm. you know, because that's, that's what I was passionate about is learning about that history and kind of, uh, reimagining it for a modern audience. And so the piece itself, when I premiered it and I still play it with symphonies, mm-hmm. um, is similar because it has like three of the the same songs that I have featured in the film, you know, that also became big songs in my album. Yeah. So Omoyari, the idea, the song film idea is actually, it's a, it's a a unified uh, artistic statement that includes documentary filmmaking and this album. And so like, it's a song cycle. So the song part was the album that, you know, that finished several years ago, yeah. you know, and then the film is finally finished. Mm. So the song film is now complete. Omoyari. Mm-hmm. 
you know, actually, I think it's good to ask, what does omoyari mean? So omoyari is a, a Japanese word about having compassion or empathy for another person. Like oftentimes it's used for guests, like somebody's coming, you know, have omoyari. You do, you do the best for them. But it's also used for like strangers. So like helping somebody or helping the community, having like a heart or empathy for other people. Um, it's pretty popular. It's a popular word in Japan. Mm. So it's, it's kind of like what I thought the root, you know, as I struggled to, to see, you know, a lot of fear and xenophobia. And I was trying to figure out what the fundamental problem with all this is. And it's really just the lack of empathy, really. Mm -hmm. So that's why I chose that word. Um, what do you feel is the greatest takeaway from this filmmaking experience? The greatest takeaway? You mean as a filmmaker now? that I am, <laughs> that I became. Uh, probably from the documentary, but yeah, let's in also tack that on as well. Well, I think for me personally, it, it was a tremendous uh, era of growth. You know, like I, I learned a lot and I also learned a lot. I was able to articulate all these feelings I had like I never have before because I kept talking about it. And I was able to, I learned how to interview people mm -hmm. and I learned how to put a documentary together. And so now I think I've, I feel like I can go forth and, and make more documentaries, you know, especially like that have narrative history and like historical um, narratives, as well as like, you know, social justice themes, you know, which I care passionately about. Mm -hmm. When you stood in the fields of each internment camp, did each one have a different feeling to them? Or can you even describe what those feelings were like? Yeah, each each place was um, each place was different. Sometimes it was really harsh and, and inhospitable, like the cold, the cold ones I went to or the weather was bad, but sometimes it was really pleasant. Mm. And so it was really difficult, especially when it's pleasant to kind of, to really channel uh, that feeling of, of sorrow, despair, you know, or something that I was, that I initially wanted to bring with me so I could improvise something like that for the screen. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that oh, a lot of it's about the memory of the people and how, um, you know, and they, they might have been humiliated or, um, you know, it was a grave injustice, but I think oftentimes they were very resilient and had a lot of hope that they would get out of these places. And, and ultimately, they, a lot of people would be thriving and this would not, incarceration would not dominate their lives or their identity. You know, they'd go on to live beautiful lives. And so to me, that was like kind of what motivated me to, to not uh, be so confused about how pleasant <laughs> these places were sometimes. You know. Yeah. Uh, what was it like talking to survivors of the camp? Uh, it was very fascinating. It was um, ultimately, you know, I'm super grateful for a lot of people in their time, and it was interesting because they're like a lot of times if they were in their 80s, you know, they would they would have been children. So for them, mm. it was it was actually a fun memory because they were just a bunch of kids running around in camp and parents can't really tell them what to do. And it was like, it was, uh, that's what, this is what people told me. Um, and then you realize that, oh, their parents were really shielding them from this, this utter humiliation, because if you were in your nineties now, and if you're still surviving, you would have been an adult back then. And you would have remembered how humiliating and, and how, um, degrading it was mm. to be just rounded up and put in these camps, you know? And so, um, it was, but, but then also, you know, they also had these wonderful lives after the war yeah. and they were able to, to still maintain their humanity, but also be very vigilant about sharing this history. And I thought it was, I thought it was great. 
thought it was wonderful to really connect with people instead of just reading about it. Yeah. Was there anyone that reached out to you or was it you reaching out to people or was it even like people connecting you to other survivors? Well, we had um, the first trip I did was with a bunch of Brown University students. And so mm-hmm. uh, a good friend of mine, Aaron Aoyama, had a lot of connections. Um, and this group actually had a lot of connections. So we went to some museums and then the museums, that also, there's several organizations like the JACL and um, foundations that have a network of people. So oftentimes we'd go to a place and there they would be people that were more than happy to talk to us. You know, especially since we told them we, we were doing a research trip and we cared about the history. Yeah. It was very easy to find people to talk to us. That's amazing. Was there a particular part of this whole documentary process that really stood out for you and sticks with you often? Hmm. This whole process is now a blur in my mind. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I did see a lot of beautiful, empty places, mm. you know, because a lot of these camps were in the middle of nowhere. It's places that that were undesirable. You know, these are like desert areas that people really have trouble living in, you know. And so, like, I went to a lot of, yeah, these open, empty places. And I think that was particularly inspiring to me. It kind of changed my life, honestly, because uh, I started to appreciate nature more and, uh, like, untouched oh, wow. nature, mm-hmm. you know. So. Yeah, is that something that you weren't, because um, you're in, or you did live in Georgia, and I felt like Georgia is very nature-bound. Um, so was that just something you didn't appreciate when you were living there, or? <laughs> I mean, Georgia's like a jungle. <laughs> it's like a, it's tropical, <laughs> almost. There's like huge spiders and snakes and stuff, you know. Um, cockroaches are massive. Oh, gosh. Um, and I think, <laughs> but, uh, no, there's a lot of nature, but I think the mountain west area, you know, the desert regions and, like, these, like, sharp peaks and, you know, Manzanar is right by the Sierras, and then um, Heart Mountain is in the wi- western Wyoming. <clears throat> I think um, it's it's different. You know, it, the topography is different. Um, Athens is also, I still lived in city centers, mm-hmm. you know. Like, I lived in New York City. Even in Athens, It's a it, which is in the middle of nowhere in Georgia, it's still a college town. So it's, it's a little bubble. Yeah. So it was nature-y, but it wasn't, like, wide open. Got it. Well, I want to shift the focus of the documentary to what I felt most connected to as a fellow Nisei from my mom's side. And one of the biggest takeaways from your film is the fact that the United States has had a long history of assimilation while refusing inclusion throughout its conception. And it continues to be prominent today, causing many to experience a bicultural identity crisis that I feel like we are finally talking about and addressing through pieces like your documentary. Uh, so were you even aware before you made this documentary the duality of your Japanese and American identities, or was that something you came to realize during filming? I think I came to realize during filming, and that's kind of why the film even exists, because it's documenting my the cha- my changing attitude towards um, just being an observer to becoming like uh, somebody who can actually confront this new changing dynamic. You know, I think... Towards the end of the film, it, it's, you know, it's, I talk about protest and, and helping, you know, uh, immigrant, like immigrants and asylum seekers to this country. And I think it's like, you realize that Asian Americans have this bi- duality in which we are privileged to some extent, you know, and then, but we also, you know, but being a minority, we also have these, this trauma of assimilation and, and 
various like discriminations that have occurred in the past. And so I think to me, it was to finding a, a place to, to settle in there and, but also being unapologetically American, you know, and feeling comfortable here is, was something that I, I did not feel when I started making the film. Mm -hmm. Can you explain more about the journey for you of figuring out for yourself, like, like coming to terms with this or, uh, <clears throat> The, uh, the process of coming to terms with it? Yeah, with your bicultural identity. Well, let me think. Um, I think I started uh, artistically, you know, it's easy to see because like in the film, I started using more Japanese in my songs. I have like Japanese melodies. I collaborated with a taiko group in Chicago called Hoetsu. Uh, and it's, um, these are things that I would not have felt comfortable before. Like, you know, using a cultural affect you know i could call them affectations but cultural um things in my music integrating them into my music was something i was not comfortable doing before so i think um i could see that and then and then personally um in making this film and, and writing the voiceover and like doing all this stuff i've i've convinced myself that it's a, it's something that i can be more comfortable with mm. because i i you know i've, I've become more of uh, i've shaped I've on working on this film and like seeing researching history and like understanding the the assimilation and the systemic racism that immigrants have always felt is like something that I started to understand that um I'm I'm not uh, I don't feel afraid of of voicing anymore. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh knowing you have a daughter, have you uh both discussed it since the making of Omoyari? Well, I mean, she definitely has seen the movie. So she's also a teen. She's like, <laughs> she's a teen. So I don't really know what, you know, I haven't talked to her about it recently. She's proud of it. She's proud of me, you know, and she knows that she's in it. Oh my gosh. So, uh, <laughs> she's definitely very, you know, she's, she's, she's pretty woke for her generation. You know, mm. her generation is, is definitely more inclusive. Yeah. So she understands everything about what I talk, what I'm talking about. And I made sure she did. Yeah. You know, we talked about racism and assimilation and all these things. Uh, no, we don't talk about the movie on a regular basis. It's more like she wants some money because she's not working so much right now. <laughs> I she mean, has college essays to do. You know, so. I, and that's something about this generation that I think is really amazing is um, the inclusion is getting there where it's like I felt in the um, in the 90s or, you know, earlier you were made fun of for like bringing something different or even trying to speak like a second language. Yeah. And everybody would say like, you need to speak English. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I remember, okay, like, until, like, in the 80s, like, nobody could use chopsticks except, like, Asian people. This is something, this is true. Mm -hmm. And then in the 90s, I think, like, sushi started coming popular, and then Chinese food started becoming more popular, and then I think, like, yeah, it was, like, like blatant, in-your-face racism, like, has, you know, I thought disappeared, you know, I haven't heard about, I haven't heard it in a while, but you know, it's still out there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think people are just more, um, like I wouldn't have been able to make this movie like 10 years ago. I wouldn't have felt comfortable. You know, I think there's a lot more support from the mainstream, yeah. uh, meaning like mainstream, like white people, you know, support <laughs> minorities and their voices, you know? Um, but I think so honestly coming back to Sola, I think she's, I read one of her, you know, college essays and one of them was, was about Asian American identity. Mm. So I was like, Oh, she actually, you know, we don't really talk about it, but she does, she is aware and she's very comfortable about her biculturalness because she, you know, she did mention it was one of the topics of one of her essays <laughs> for college. Oh, so. that's great. I like that. <laughs> yeah. 
I was actually like, thrilled. I was thrilled to see that, honestly. Yeah. She's probably she's she probably won't see this hear this podcast, so it's fine. <laughs> you know, she's not a podcast person. That's fine, that's fine. We can keep this to ourselves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I really liked seeing your parents in the documentary. I thought that was very cute. Um, like your mom uh reminded me of my mom actually. Um <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my mom's great. But is uh like do you think that we can even have this conversation with our parents? Yeah, with my parents in that generation, you know, I think a lot of them are feeling more comfortable. But there's also a lot of people who are not, you know, and they, are, they're, they might be still convinced that yeah. they don't feel safe or America is not quite their home. I mean, America is their, you know, if they're American, they live here for decades, then yeah, it is their home. But they might not, might not feel truly American mm-hmm. and they might still feel unsafe. And... Honestly, when you get when you get to a certain age, you don't and you've lived your life a certain way, you you know, you don't really I don't think it's you, and oftentimes they won't think it's their place to speak up or to enact change. You know, mm-hmm. they're not going to become activists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They might vote differently. Yeah. Yeah, you know, but besides that, they're going to they're going to pretty much live their life the way they are. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you if you talk about the older generation, I think a lot of them would appreciate this message. But it's not going to change your lives, like, drastically. Yeah, yeah. At least if we can, like, even open this discussion or, in a sense, if they can even get some sense of peace from this, from what we've learned, I think that would be pretty cool. I think if they see their children and their, grand- their grandchildren, like, happy and thriving, I think that's that'll probably just bring them joy. That's true. Know, in my opinion. Yeah. And not be frustrated. <laughs> <clears throat> I think that's the worst thing is to see your kids frustrated. That's like, that gives, that's sad. Yeah. Uh, talk to my mom. I have an art career. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, I'm a musician. So. <laughs> they were worried for a while. Yeah. Uh, but I'm sure they're so proud of you now with like what you've accomplished. They're definitely proud of me. But it, it took, you know, I moved back in with my parents when I was like 36. So, you know, I don't know. That's for like a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, it's humiliating. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that. I feel it, it's becoming uh, more common now. The age of like 35, 36, where we have to go home or there's like. Really? Yeah. Um I, I hear it more often, like, I'll, I'll admit, I had to do it too. And it's a weird feeling of, um, like, you think you're supposed to have it all at this stage. And then hmm. it's almost like a, um, not a quarter life crisis or, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's like a rebirth in a sense where you have to be like, well, I have to go back. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. Are, are people getting laid off and they have to go back or are they quitting their careers and then going back? Oh, you know what? I think it's, uh, well, in the entertainment industry, it's definitely being like, we're being laid off. <laughs> like, oh, in the entertainment? Really? Like a lot of what? Like filmmakers, actors? Yeah, kind of well, stuff, I'm, I'm in animation. So it's like uh, everybody in the industry has been hit really hard. And right. um, so, yeah, actors, camera, people, like set decorators, um, makeup. And then in animation, we like. I thought you guys thrived during COVID. <laughs> I thought I, uh... technically, yeah. I mean, technically, in terms of um, 
that was the most work we've had. But <laughs> yeah. at the same time, we were forced to stay home. All right. And yeah. there was like no interaction with anybody else. And it's uh, it's something different when you're like stuck at home, forced to work. <laughs> you know? Yep. Forced to work. You're like the frontline workers of entertainment industry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> First responders. First responders. Don't worry, we got your entertainment needs <laughs> met. Already, Omoi Yari, the album, is so different from what you've made before. Do you feel that this documentary experience has changed your process in making music going forward? Um, hmm, has the process of making this documentary... No, I think music for me is... Um, I mean, I learned a lot about how to, how to score for film, even though I studied it in college. Um, I think... Uh, the, it hasn't really changed my pro- musical process. My musical process is still the same. I collect a lot of ideas, I work on them, and then I take whatever inspires me to to create like albums, albums, you know, in general. So I think uh, it's changed me in the way that I see now filmmaking is a possibility to take up a lot of my time, which kind of scares me. You know. Oh, really? So uh, are you going to do more films, you think? Or are you going to combine film and music again? Or... I'd like to, you know, there's a, there's a lot of possibilities for me now, you know, because, <clears throat> but I'm always involved in my, um, you know, I am making a new, a new album for next fall. So, you know, I usually work on my music videos, so I have a lot of ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, think about Japanese, you know, anime, that's what I'm thinking about right now. So I, I love anime. So I was uh, looking at some studios to hire potentially, you know, so. In Japan? Yeah, maybe. There's some. There's also some non-Japanese studios I've been looking at in that make anime that pretty well. That's awesome. Uh, I feel like a lot of people would say, "Oh, would you go with Studio Trigger?" (laughs) Oh, I don't know them. Is that is that yours? Oh no, Studio Trigger. They've done um, Kill a Kill or like um, forgot. I can't think of another. Or even um, oh, there's a really good one. Uh, Suggestions. Studio Saru. I, I'm thinking of like okay. these boutique ones that create yeah. really crazy. Um... That's what I'm looking for. Tell me, uh, tell me if you um, <laughs> if you think of more, just email them to me. Oh my gosh, for sure. for sure. I just started the process, so. <laughs> I mean, Masaki Yuasa has such a crazy, mm-hmm. unique style. If you watch any of his films, um, but he's done mainstream stuff too. Uh, yeah, his latest film was called Inuo, but he started with this, um, really, uh, it's like experimental, like his feature film he started out with was called Mind Game and Mm. he, uh, made it when he was 40 and it was his first feature film Mm. and he's been kind of like, you know, rising up ever since. So he's Japanese. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I feel like I want to do something, you know, I've, I love like anime and, you know, I've, I've worked with you know, I've done like stop motion myself and it's like, I love, uh, I feel like that's something I would like to do more, you know, get into, especially if I have like a music video budget or something. Yeah. I can like, um, do them. But I think, uh, yeah, the concepting them are, that's like a lot of work. So that's what I'm working on now. It is. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not an artist. I can't draw anything. I can barely draw, you know, so, but ideas I think is, is where the gold is. So I'm trying to focus on that. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I was going to also like um, ask, you know, 
what kind of animes have you been watching lately or only watch the super popular ones you know like i was i was watching like attack on titan and oh, okay. of course i like demon slayer mm-hmm. um but those are yeah i haven't watched too many recently what am i watching right now watching one called my demon oh right now it's what's pretty that cool it's on netflix have you watched pluto oh i like yeah i watch <laughs> i watch one episode of it um so that's a, that's tetsuan atom right it's, it's some kind of a spin-off of adam the character that manga i watched the first episode and it was really interesting and then strange because it had a tangent a completely unrelated like sub story for like 30 <laughs> minutes into the episode um I like Japanese anime because I, I see a lot of like American anime and it's not like, or American animation in the style of anime, mm. you know? And to me, it's like, it's not like, there's like a lot of times it's like missing. It's, it's kind of using like a lot of, I don't know what my point of critiquing it is <laughs> because they're trying, you know, but it's, it's not as edgy to me. Like Japanese animation has like some kind of really either violent or story like edge. That's just yeah. like gripping you know Mm -hmm. for some reason and i don't a lot of times they rely on a lot of just samurai or like japanese like tropes yeah you know that i that aren't particularly exotic to me Mm -hmm. you know when i when i look at it you know there's nothing really exotic about a samurai (laughs) or or a ninja to me you know definitely i just kind of grew up with it and i don't even think americans are particularly impressed either you know Mm. because americans are aware yeah Unless they Western like uh, Tom Cruise in um, Last Samurai. Yeah, they like Tom. Yeah, I mean, that was intriguing. He makes he makes a good Samurai. <laughs> you know, top knot and all. Uh, I'm looking up. There is this um, one that I thought was uh, really interesting called Zom 100, Bucket List of the Dead. Have you heard that one? No, I'll check it out. Zom 100. You watched a trailer. It It's like such a unique and cool take on the zombie apocalypse where someone's like works a corporate job finds out that oh this is my life being a corporate stooge right Mm -hmm. and then um and then the zombie apocalypse happens and they're like oh my gosh i have so much free time (laughs) (laughs) and i was like that's so relatable (laughs) (laughs) it's japanese yeah yeah like, it's one of those things where it started off as a manga, but then um, both the anime and the live action came out around the same time. And I'm like, oh, that's how you know that. Uh, oh. Like, you know. It's good. Yeah. 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 Or that it's so popular mm. that they had to make them both at the same time. Because <laughs> usually it's like one or the other. Oh, they yeah, either yeah. make the anime first and then the live action or vice versa, but yeah. never so close. Yeah. I think anything with the where, the, where it's a manga first like the story is like really solid you know the characters mm-hmm. are good and the story is solid and then i think that's when uh that's where a lot of these other things fail where they go straight to like animation first mm. they don't think enough they don't spend enough time on the, the story yeah the characters to make them like likable because uh, J- japan's like so competitive their manga market and it's like if it's not good it's not gonna like no n- nobody's gonna give it a chance you know well i want to uh kind of go back are you gonna do all um your whole album or all your music videos for this next album to be anime is it gonna have like a storyline or what are you yeah maybe conceptually i'm thinking um i'm still working on the music but i can i'm yeah there's a concept that i've been floating around in my head you know so i'm looking at 
some iconography and some kind of storylines to tie it all together. Maybe even creating a universe. Ooh, you know. that'd be cool. I think of a uh, Daft Punk when they did their. Oh yeah, I love that one. That was so Talking good. About, uh, that that whole like thirty minute movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like to do that, but I don't even know how much that cost them. So that sounds crazy. I know, and they got like really got good kind of budget money. too. <laughs> I don't have that kind of I don't have that kind of money. But I have a little bit of money. So, is there anything you can talk about your new album, or is that still kind of uh, the one coming out next year? Yeah, it's kind of dancey. Ooh. It's like a party album. Yeah, so it's kind of a departure. It's not really. It's not. A, it's a departure from my last six years of work and this documentary, but. Only because it's a lot of the ideas I was making um, that probably just I never felt were appropriate. Oh, interesting. Until I com- completed the movie. The movie's out, you know, and now I can just do something else. Yeah. Um, I guess, like, so is it a combination of all the ones that didn't fit into your previous albums and then then some, like? Yeah, it's a lot of ideas I came up with probably in the past few years mm-hmm. that are kind of like energetic and dancey and like have nothing to do with Japanese internment, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's kind of like, or, you know, uh, cultural erasure. I don't know, like all these themes that I, that I'm pa- passionate about still, but you know, I, I also like, like, dan- you know, dance music. Yeah. So I like EDM and I like, if you listen to my music, it's not all just sad and orchestral. It's not, or, no. You know, um, which I think is so like unique fun. about it. I like fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I think is why so many people are drawn to it, obviously. Um, is, is there any, so that's what you're working on musically. Is there any other project other than music that you're working on right now? Um, nope. That's what I'm, <laughs> I'm working on my new album. Oh my gosh. <laughs> working on my new album. It's due. I have to send it off to mixing in January. So pretty much. Oh, yeah, wow. Pretty much doing that. Wait, so is the time that it takes from sending into mix to it being released in fall, is that just like promoting and then getting the hype up to release Yeah, yeah, it? there's a whole, it usually takes several months, like publicity and then manufacturing and I don't know, like making music videos and like my label is like nervous even with January, like mid-January, you know, <laughs> they're like, it's making them nervous. Like, oh, wow. Like that's how, that's how it works. You just, you need, you need time to set up promotion. Yeah. But then you're already thinking of the music videos and you're like, well, this is the style I want for, you know, what's coming up yeah, next. I can already tell. It's like, I need, an, I need an anime, something anime. Do you even do like uh, music for movies or? Um, I mean, I studied it. Uh, I did. Uh, there's a show called Stillwater, Apple Plus. I did that. I did. I wrote mm. the music for that. And um, yeah, I do it. Uh sparingly you know i'm not in, i'm not in the industry because it's like a it's pretty i worked on like a couple document feature length docs like back in the day after i graduated and kind of burnt and let me realize that um i also used to work like i mean uh, commercial jingles jingles and stuff like oh, and yeah. demos and stuff mm-hmm. like that and i and uh i don't think i was a very good film scorer because my music would be way too exciting <laughs> to be any under definitely for docs my music's just way too exciting mm-hmm. to be under any like talking you know like it. Yeah, I see what you so mean. So I failed. I'm a, like a failed doc filmmaker. So, but um, or like underscore, 
you know, I'm just not really good at it. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just like to make music, like in your face music that's emotional. Yeah. You know, all the time. Oh, uh, okay. So is there anything recently or in the past couple of years that you would say has been inspiring in your life lately that has got you feeling passionate and invigorated? Uh, you mean like my fiance that I'm going to marry uh, next year? Uh, <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, she's upstairs. Uh, Kimberly Dill. She's a professor of philosophy, environmental philosophy. So it's kind of like learning a lot, actually, about the world and our existence and how we've thought about our existence and indigenous uh, narratives and the environment and, you know, stuff like that. So. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. How did you guys meet, if you don't mind me asking? Um, I think she was on a road trip in well, – I was living in Montana, and she was on a road trip. Mm-hmm. So we kind of had a, we had a first date in Yellowstone. <laughs> Pretty much. Long story short. Yeah, that's unique. You don't hear about first dates uh, together in the wild. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we did it that's so cool how long have you guys been together for a couple years yeah and then uh how'd you propose uh a new year's eve show last oh new year's oh my gosh so my parents happened to be there which is cool oh that's so sweet yeah wow wow that is something to be invigorated about like <laughs> and passionate yep. so yeah it's great it's my new <laughs> my new lease on life yay I mean, things happen, I, I know people hate when you say this, but it's like things happen for a reason or like, you know, you like, things happen so you can get on the right track or whatever life yeah. gives you. I think, yeah. I don't I know think, if you believe that. I, um, I, I do. I mean, I, I believe that thing, you know, the shit happens. I, I believe in that, you know, but it's like, <laughs> it's, your, it's really your perspective. And mm-hmm. if you want to take a lesson out of it, sometimes it's just, sometimes statistically something awful is just going to happen to you, you know? Yeah. And it's just like, if, if you're prepared you do your best to prepare for what's what life throws at you, and then um, you, know, you do your best to just live through it. Yeah. In the vein of funsies, is there a random animal fact you can tell me? Funsies? Oh, in the realm of funsies. Um, animal, uh, animal fact? Yes. Oh, well, I just learned from my environmental um, philosopher fiancé that uh, bats do a majority of pollinating at night. They're a major pollinator of plants, and so like di- like having a dark like sky for these plants is extremely important for, for, um, pollination. Did not know that. (laughs) Yeah. That's really cool. Um, I'll have to look that up as part of the show. I'd like to pull out a tarot card for the episode because who knows, maybe you need to hear it today. Um, Mm. and I'm using my universal fantasy tarot deck and basically (laughs) what I'm going to do is shuffle and you just tell me when to stop and then we'll see what's going to be the card that comes up on top. Stop. Okay. Ooh, ooh, cool. Um, we got strength. The fool. No. Strength. So, if you can. Oh, strength. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's number eight. Okay. And eight's a good number. Um, if you want to describe what you're seeing in this. Um, it looks like a. I can only see a figure. And he's in a. Oh, is there a dragon? Some kind of beast? And he's in a forest. A dragon. Is there a dragon? Yeah. Uh, okay. Does it make you feel any kind of way or? Um, well, I'm about to go um, bouldering, so maybe it does make me feel like I need to warm up. <laughs> <laughs> bit. I need to conquer it. You need to get that inner strength in. Yes. That's not going to help me. I need finger strength. <laughs> That's what I need. Well, the dragon will help you. Okay. So 
The strength description says there are no enemies, only lovers yet unknown. We can react to fear by opening our heart. The force of the spirit can win out over arrogance and tyranny. Hmm. There are no enemies, only lovers yet undiscovered. Unknown. <laughs> that... Like lovers? I know. Uh, so, uh, I mean, so I like reading it, but then going <laughs> off of what our situation is or what we've talked about. Yeah. And honestly, I feel like this goes into Omoyari. The mm. fact that, you know, like we talked about, um, people without compassion, like without empathy, it feels like they lead with fear because really fear is our biggest. Yeah. I, th- I think like, like when you think about what podcasts are really popular, you know, if you look at the top list, is they're all like crime mm-hmm. podcasts, you know, like all the awful things that people do to each other. And if you look at, you know, like those shows, when you look at the commercials, they play the commercials are like about security or like, you know, about like, how are you going to protect yourself? Yeah. You know, and a lot of preppers and like people like that, you think about, sure, there's like lots of danger out there, but how scared are you of it? You know, and that can really determine how much empathy you have because, you know, your empathy is kind of like, uh, it goes in circles, you know, you got to, you protect yourself first and then you got your friends and your family and your loved ones. And then, and then kind of, they go in concentric until they're like basically strangers. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you're fearful, it's not, you're not going to be able to extend that empathy very far because you have to, you're fearful for your own little circle that you're in. And so oftentimes the if the first step into having that kind of compassion for a stranger is really to be less fearful. Yeah. And to draw up that that strength. Yeah. Yeah. That's how you draw that strength. And that's how you can be strong with those lovers unknown. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah. And like, even just going back to the card, you know, a dragon, a beast would be so something so scary if you didn't know it, but it's fear. And so, when you don't have fear, the person in the card is like touching the dragon on the head and she doesn't have that fear. She has that strength to, you know, mm. bring, being, bring that compassion to the, again, lovers unknown. <laughs> <laughs> I also learned that from Kimberly that uh, a lot of times the, the dragon in, in especially like European traditions, it represents pagan the pagan religions that they've conquered. So like Saint, Whoa. what's his name? Saint, whatever, slaying the dragon mm-hmm. is really conquering of these unknown pagan religions, you know, the indigenous religions. Wow. With Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's any, any large religion. They'll, they'll do anything. It, power, really yep. power. Absolutely. Yeah. Power. Ugh. Well, uh, thank you so much, Kay, for being here and talking with me. Where can people find you and follow your work, watch the movie, hear the latest updates? Mm, uh, well, there's kishibashi.com, and there's also omoyarisongfilm.com, and there's the internet. You can just Google Kishibashi, and there's a bunch of stuff. So Awesome. Uh, well, sadly, we are at the end. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow and subscribe. If you're feeling especially generous, consider donating to Spotify listener support. You can also follow Tired and Thriving on Instagram at Tired and Thriving, all one word. You can email if you want to reach out, give feedback, or let me know maybe how you've been uniquely thriving at tiredandthriving at gmail.com. Thank you again, and I hope you all have a thriving week. See you next time. Mm-hmm.